Welcome to Truth 30 with Joey Dumont, a podcast that debates our society's most politically compelling topics through the lens of slow journalism. Each show is investigated with a focus on narrative as well as discovery. We believe that the complexity of our culture today cannot be crammed into six-minute television segments or snippets and memes on social media, where ideology and entertainment has overtaken the creed of historical reporting. On the program, you'll hear the opinions of subject matter experts to help you separate the signal from the noise. Our collective goal is to better understand one another, not win a battle. After watching, you'll be reminded that a proper debate is not about victory, but that of inquiry, education, and viewpoint diversity. So tune in and talk amongst yourselves. You may even learn a thing or two. My guest today is Dan Rottenberg. Dan recently released his memoir, The Education of a Journalist, My 70 Years on the Frontiers of Free Speech. It was a ripping read, and I feel fortunate to have him on the show today, specifically to talk about his storied career in journalism and the publishing industry at large. Rottenberg wrote an editorial page column for the Philadelphia Inquirer from 1978 to 1997. He has written more than 300 articles for such magazines as Town & Country, The New York Times, Forbes, Civilization, Playboy, and The Rolling Stone. He served as a consultant in 1981 when Forbes launched its annual Forbes 400 list of wealthiest Americans. And yes, he refused to include Donald Trump in his early days, even in spite of Donald Trump doing his best to get invited. Earlier in his career, Rottenberg was executive editor of the Philadelphia Magazine, managing editor of Chicago Journalism Review, a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, and editor of the Commercial Review, a daily newspaper in Portland, Indiana. Rottenberg is a native of New York City. He graduated from the Fieldton School in 1960 and the University of Pennsylvania in 1964. He now lives in Philadelphia with his wife, a piano teacher, and his two grown daughters live and work in New York City. I hope you enjoy the show as much as I did. Well, that is our legal warning, Dan Rottenberg. So we are on camera. Good to be here. Well, I really appreciate having you. And, you know, I've been covering a lot of topics under True 30. Not sure how much you know about our organization, but we're a recent media company, journalistic startup. Uh, we started in February, and I have two journalists with me, one of who used to work for the Inquirer and lives in Philadelphia. So he's he's now reading your book because I passed it on to him. And uh, I have three friends from the media world. One is also a very story journalist in her own right. And uh, we've covered topics like defund the police, critical race theory, gender ideology, and the state of journalism. And so currently I have actually just got notification today from uh, a very astute celebrated journalist who's currently on television, will be joining me in a couple of weeks, which I'm really happy about. I interviewed a woman named Miss Marsha Cross, excuse me, Miss Marsha Parker, who is the COO of Cal Matters in here in California. And she is the COO of the largest nonprofit journalism organization in the state. And so we've been having a lot of fun talking to people of your ilk. And that's actually how I got in touch with you. Mark Naples is on my editorial board, and I understand he's your neighbor. <laughs> so oh, yeah. that's, that's how we actually got to know you. And so for those that are watching on YouTube, this is your memoir, The Education of a Journalist. My 70 years on the frontiers of free speech. And I can just say, because I don't have to worry about being objective with this, this was a fantastic, ripping read. I loved every minute of it. I highlighted tons, which I actually took and put into these notes. But I, I wanted to start on a little bit for the folks. I did pre-record an intro for you, but for anyone that does skip that, I wanted to at least give them a little bit about your background so they understand who I'm talking to and why I'm so happy I'm talking to you. And it's early in your career, you're the executive editor of Philadelphia Magazine, which is kind of the precursor to New York Magazine, managing editor of Chicago Journalism Review, which we'll talk about in, in detail, a Wall Street Journal reporter, an editor of the Commercial Review, a daily, news, a daily newspaper in Portland, Indiana, which was, I think, your first gig out of That's Penn. Right. You've also written 11 books, including the memoir I just held up, which Actually, I absolutely... No. 12 now. That's right. 11 books included. Right. <laughs> and reading your book was like being a fly on the wall as a film member attempted to chronicle the heritage of old shoe leather reporters. And I just loved it. I loved everything about it. And because I'm not a journalist, I am a publisher and a talking head. I have tons of respect for people like you and the journalists I have on. 
as partners in my organization. So I just wanted to start with that and, and say that uh, I'm honored to have you on the show. Well, I'm honored to be here. And, and you, in a sense, are an entrepreneur in good works journalism, just as I think I have been. Yeah, I'm actually trying. There was a lot of that as I read through your, your book, specific to all the life lessons you had both as a writer, as an editor, and then unfortunately as the president <laughs> and publisher, which you never wanted to get to, but eventually sucked you into that role. And yeah. I, I do kind of, you know, with Herb Lipson, we'll get into that too. I, I, uh, I kind of felt like uh, for me as a publisher, I came from the ad world and I ran or helped run ad agencies for about 20 years mm -hmm. as a partner and managing director. And so I did deal with all the fun stuff, you know, the business side of things and operations and people and HR and, and pitches, you know, I was the pitch guy. So I spent a lot of time with clients and making sure they were happy and making sure that the, the door stayed open because revenue was necessary to do that. And so sounds, sounds like I could have used you in some of my publications. <laughs> I knew I was clueless about the business side, you know, I thought about that as I read it in 2005, specifically when you got into your internet thing, uh, I was actually running an ad agency at that point. But if I would have met you, I would have been definitely pulled to see if I could come and help you get your stuff going. And, and uh, it's actually still going, which we'll get into. So one of the big threads, obviously, and you even had it in your cover was your 70 years on the frontiers of free speech and how important that is. And I think that that is a, a central theme in the beginning of your book, you wrote, in a free society, what's the best antidote for bad speech? And I thought that was a really good precursor to much of what you wrote in your book. Uh, how do you see free speech today as a story journalist? And, and what do you think is happening? Well, <laughs> the, the interesting thing is, you know, the, the prologue to my book is, is titled, Where Did I Go Right? And I'm talking about all the good things that happened to me in my career. And then the epilogue to my book, the, the title is, Be Careful What You Wish For. And the more I think about it, I really could have called the epilogue, Where Did I Go Wrong? But <laughs> basically, I spent much of my career trying to start alternative publications, trying to convince people that freedom of speech belongs to everybody, not just publishers, not just professionals. But everybody. Yeah. And uh, essentially, the, the internet came along. I got what I wished for. Nowadays, everybody thinks they're a journalist and they go online. And uh, I have discovered to my great uh, grief or, or sorrow that not everybody has the principles and the, uh, what's the word, guts, I guess, the courage or whatever or the interest really in, in finding out what's really going on. One of my favorite New Yorker cartoons, you see a dog sitting in front of a computer and the dog is saying on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog, you know, it's that kind of thing. <laughs> so I basically got what I wished for. And now what I'm wishing for is we need more really strong authoritative voices that, uh, first of all, have the ability to, to find out what's really going on, and mm -hmm. second of all, have the, the financial resources to pay professional journalists and maybe even give them uh, health benefits or, or whatever. Because, uh, but this is what I was fighting against my whole life, you know, the, the high priests of the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune and and whatever, and, and trying to encourage people, if you don't like your newspaper, start your own. And this has been a recurring theme in my, in my life. Well, now everybody is a journalist on the internet. So, but I, I, I would say that the, the, good, the good side is, and I'm an eternal optimist, uh, we are really only at the, we, the beginning of history with the internet. And People are going to figure out ways to uh, make money out of good journalism on the Internet, just as they did in, in print newspapers. You know, the whole idea, I mean, the, for, for 100 years, uh, good journalism in newspapers was basically being paid for by 
ads from department stores and auto dealers and classified ads, help wanted. And, you know, who would have ever thought of that in the 19th century, that that's how we're going to pay for good journalism? But, but it worked for a long time. And I think people on the Internet are just starting to figure out, here's how we can make money out of, out of good journalism. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that on the free speech front, there was uh, Ira Gloss. Ira Glassner actually said recently that, and he was to, he was the executive director of the ACLU from 1978 to 1991, yes. I think. And, and he said, you can't say I like free speech, but <laughs> there is no, but you either yep. like it or you don't, you either agree with it or you don't. And I think a lot of what's taking place with our, our August publishers like the New York times and the Washington post is that they are in part having to acquiesce a little bit of what they print or why they print it based on money. And I think, I don't know if you've heard of the book called Bad News, but it was a recent yeah. book by Bhatia Anger Sargon. And uh, it was a pretty scathing indictment of the New York Times specifically and the Washington Post. And you talked a little bit about this specifically in one of your, I think it was when you were taking the job at the Wall Street Journal and you talked about a lot of the young folks that come out of Columbia's School of Journalism, and it's a direct path to the big publishers, specifically the New York Times. Yes. And she talks about that at length, specifically as a, well, actually in a derogatory fashion, meaning that back in your day, reporters were, it was a trade. It was something where you didn't have to come from the best and the brightest and richest families. You had an opportunity to go out and kind of, position yourself as a actual justice warrior, specifically with your pen, to call out the powers that be within a society. And that was a really big function of journalism, you know, all the way up through your chronicled story, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And what she's saying now, and I, I can attest to some of this as someone who sold media with the New York Times, is that the journalists today are these privileged kids that come out of privileged families because they could take an internship in Washington, DC or New York or Manhattan as an example, which is unpaid, but it's an internship with one of the best publishers in the world and they can go out and do what they want to do. And in 2014, she actually exposed a memo from the New York times to all of its young reporters that said, it's great, not only great, but we recommend that you build a social following on Twitter and elsewhere so that you can build your own coterie of folks who love your stuff. And the problem with that is that if you write a story, much like you did during your whole career, that was off color or that was not popular or that was a opinion that you didn't agree with, you could actually lose your following. And so it, 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 there's an inherent conflict in that. And I think that, I don't know if you read the book, but that's a big piece to what she was talking about. Yeah. Well, I, I would say, you know, I got out of college in 1964. And at that time, I think journalism was just beginning to become a, a really a profession. Most reporters up to that point, uh, did, many of them did not go to college. Right. They started out as copy boys or something like that, and they worked yep. their way up, office boys, whatever. And they tended to be, what's the word, dazzled or, or overwhelmed by the people they wrote about. The the, uh, the politicians, yeah. Yeah. the uh, corporate executives, whatever, uh, they were easily intimidated by e mayors or whatever. Then you had a whole new generation, and I think my generation probably started that, uh, of people who were well-trained, came from a higher background, as you mm -hmm. say. Um, and especially at the Wall Street Journal, the whole idea was we are supposed to know as much about a company as the chief executive does, which of right. course is ridiculous, but it's a, it's a good, worthy goal. The idea that when we sit down with the chief executive of a, a major corporation, now we should know as much about his company as, as he does, and he'll respect us more, and he won't give us a lot of nonsense. So that, that's very good. Uh, but on the other hand, as you say, there is also a tendency to uh, 
be just be cut off or or distant from the the, the, ma the mass of people who are not college educated or whatever. And you see a lot of that today in the whole division between uh, the blue states and the red states, I guess you could say. Right. And you also see that the, the Chinese wall between editorial and news is no longer as, as solid as it once was. Well, that's interesting. I, I'm not quite sure, and I'm not quite sure. When, when I was at the... Uh, writing a column for the Philadelphia Inquirer, for example, uh, the editorial page editor, Ed Guthman, had this idea that, okay, it's very, it's, it's not good for the editorial page to be influencing news coverage, but there's really nothing wrong with news coverage influencing the, the paper's editorials. That, that's how he said it should logically follow that, you know, what your paper is reporting uh, is, is what, shapes your opinions on the editorial page. Now, the Wall Street Journal, of course, had this extreme difference. I mean, it was like almost two different newspapers. Mm -hmm. You had the editorial page, which was very conservative. And after I left, it actually, it, it had been journalists who happened to be conservatives. After I left, it became much more uh, ideologues. And meanwhile, you have on the the rest of the paper, you have a a, a reporting staff that's uh, telling it as they see it, which was very often from a very liberal or leftist kind of viewpoint. Now, there was a theory among some of the old hands at the Wall Street Journal who said that this was a deliberate strategy by the journal, that having a really right-wing conservative editorial page liberated the journalists and the rest of the paper to, to, to tell it like it is, because nobody would ever say, oh, the journal, Wall Street Journal is a socialist newspaper. You know, nobody <laughs> would ever dare say that. So uh, the, the reporters were free to write whatever they wanted. And was that your experience in the 60s? Because you started there in 68 and you actually did a really good job of kind of helping me understand the early the early formation of the journal, specifically around Bernard Kilgore, who, yes. and as you wrote, it said, advanced the notion of humanizing articles about complicated subjects, insisting that editors and reporters make room in news stories for anecdotes, narrative details, and portraits of individuals. Under Kilgore's regime, reporters were granted then the unheard luxury of working on stories for days, yes. or when necessary, even weeks or months, in order to provide the reader with an in-depth report. And that is I think the beauty of the big newspapers in general. I love it when you can have the time and, and dollars to let a reporter go deep into a story like that. Do you, and, and then Kilgore actually was, uh, I think he passed away right before you got there. That's so, right. Nice but his legacy lived on, correct? Oh, absolutely. Did that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I would say so. At that point, 1968, the, the Wall Street Journal was really head and shoulders above every other daily newspaper in the country. In terms of its ability to, to find out what was going on, it had the resources, it had all mm -hmm. these bureaus all over the country, and uh, an intelligence and a dedication, as, as you just pointed out, to really good writing. Yeah. They could take any complicated story and make it clear and interesting and almost fun sometimes. And that was a real skill. And I, I, I really uh, idolized and loved that newspaper. I learned a tremendous amount there. Uh, on the other hand, as I point out in the book, and I think it, it's, it's interesting, you had all these skills and all these really capable people, really professional journalists throughout the whole Wall Street Journal organization. And I was there in 1968 to 70. And yet, somehow or other, I mean, they they thought they had their finger on the pulse of the nation. But basically, there was a major story going on that they completely missed, and that was the whole cultural revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, black people, women, young people, that's what was going on in the late 60s. And why did the journal miss this story? Because the whole paper was being put out by white men. <laughs> so now they were they were 
tended to be, for the most part, under 35, but still, that's nothing like being under 20, you know? Correct. So, uh, you know, there, there's no perfect formula in this world for, for a newspaper or for any other uh, human organization, I would say. You, I would agree always, with that. It, it, pardon? I said, I would agree with that. It's really well, difficult. You, yeah. What you were saying about the New York Times, it's interesting. A lot of people criticize it now. They think it's... Uh, they're letting opinions get, get into the news report. Uh, I personally feel the Times is better now than it's ever been before. And I, I'll tell you why. It used to be the Times thought of itself as the newspaper of record. It was almost this official organ. And they would print, you know, the complete text of, of major speeches and all kinds of details that, that you can now find on online. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, there was the idea was we are serving in some kind of official capacity for serving uh, the, the, the public good. What's happened now, and I think it's better, is they are saying we are serving our readers and we have this incredible professional staff. We know what's going on. We're going to share what we know with our readers. And if the president's telling lies, we're going to say he's lying. Instead of tiptoeing around it, you know, and well, the president said this, but the uh, Democrats said this, and you know, and and the poor reader has to figure out who's telling who's who's telling the truth. And I I think that's good to to basically say we are serving our readers, we're not serving some abstract principle or 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 or, or we, and we're not a public utility. We are a private operation, and we are. We are serving our readers. Yeah, no, I, it's good to hear that coming from you because obviously you have a background in this. And, and I think that for me personally, I've always had a bias in, in a good way. I've always liked the New York Times and I've read it for many years now. And I lean liberal. I'm kind of a left center on my political bends, but I have a lot of friends on the right who, if I reference the, <laughs> the New York Times in a debate, you know, they always say, well, it's just too biased. You can't really believe the reporting. And I do remind them that the New York Times has about 200 stories a day. And so if they get one wrong or if they didn't, you know, if they did slant on, a, on an actual story uh, based on perceived conflict, things like that, I, I, I do try to point out to your exact point earlier that any family, any company that's attempting to do things is going to have issues. But I, I, I tend to agree with you there. And the one thing I want to get back to, you mentioned, um, did you, when you were at the Wall Street Journal in the, in 68 through 70, you mentioned a lot of the reporters were liberal. Was that the case at the Wall Street Journal? I, I wouldn't say they were liberal. I, I would say that they were journalists. And okay. It's a difference. Yeah. A journalist is dedicated to finding out what's going on and, and sharing that information with, with his or her audience. Yeah, um, I think it is. I, I don't want to go go out on a limb here, but I, you know, a lot of conservatives say, "Why are there so many liberals in the news media, and why are there so many liberals in academia?" Well, you could also mm-hmm. say, "Why are there so many conservatives in business, or in the military, or in that's a good point um, sports?" Uh, and I think it's very interesting. I mean. Uh, Corporate, corporate life, the military, and sports basically involves you have to believe in what you're doing and make decisions without total knowledge of, of, of whatever the situation is. Yeah. At least in theory, in journalism and in academia, you have to go into things with an open mind and find out what's going on. So you know, there's sort of a liberal mindset that... It, that gravitates more toward the media and more toward academia. And then there's this conservative mindset of, you know, you already know the truth and you're, you've got to uh, accomplish something. And that, that's the people who gravitate more to, to corporate life yeah, or to the military or to sports. I don't, think true. It, I don't think it's so surprising is all I'm saying that, you know, people tend to be more liberal if they're in one field 
there are, you know, what, why aren't more conservatives going into journalism? What they wind up doing is they, they, if they're, if they're of that bent, they go into think tanks where the, where their conclusions are already made in advance rather than going to some area where, Hey, you know, maybe I'll find out my conclusions are wrong. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned that the, the wall street journal was possibly the most powerful news organization at the time missed a big cultural movement and which is a good segue into the Chicago Journalism Review. Yes. Which is something that you were a part of and very proud to be part of. And you guys kind of, I don't want to say broke the story, or maybe I'm wrong on this, but you guys, it, it was a, you want to talk a little bit about that just as a precursor before we get into the, uh, the Chicago seven, because I think that was a really interesting part of your book. Why don't you yeah. tell us a little bit about the Chicago Journalism Review, why it started and, and what your role was there? Yeah. The Chicago Journalism Review grew out of the Democratic Convention police riot, basically, in 1968, when the police uh, not only beat up anti-war protesters at the Democratic Convention, but they also beat up a lot of journalists mm. who were trying to cover uh, what, what was going on. And prior to that time, I would say, previous generations anyway, older than I was, if you're a journalist and you didn't like the way your, what your newspaper was writing, you would basically uh, go to a bar and, you know, and complain. And if you notice, every, every major newspaper in America, there were bars around <laughs> the neighborhood of the, the newspaper. Yeah. Uh, I was from a, a, a strange and unique generation, which we called the Kennedy class. John F. Kennedy was elected my freshman year of college, assassinated my senior year of college. Uh, I was born in 1942, which means I was uh, my, my age cohort or among the first people to grow up without any mem conscious memory of either the Great Depression or World War II. So people even a year or two older than I was, they were so happy to be living in a world of peace and prosperity. Mm -hmm. They loved the status quo. And then we come along and we're saying, uh, we, you know, we take peace and prosperity for granted. And we see uh, materialism, conformity, racism. And then Kennedy comes along and uh, we, we're imbued with this idea that you can reform the world for the better. So anybody older than we were is very into defending the status quo. And anybody who comes after us in the later 60s is into, well, uh, you got to destroy the whole system and start all over from scratch. Yep. So people my age, this, this uh, crisis comes along at the Democratic Convention. What do we do? Instead of going off to a bar, we started a monthly publication called the Chicago Journalism Review to basically critique our own newspapers and tell the public what was going on in our own newspaper offices and sometimes cover the stories that our, our papers were missing. Mm -hmm. Now, this was relatively easy for me because I was at, at the Wall Street Journal. I was happy. But the guys, men and women who worked for the Chicago Daily Newspapers, a lot of them were criticizing their own bosses. And uh, that really took a lot of courage. Yeah, it did. So I got involved with that. and. I was at the Wall Street Journal, but after a few months, I, the journalism review was so full of anger. And I said, you know, we have to do something else other than just a lot of venting. And I started writing parodies of local columnists. Yeah. Each month there was a parody. And this became one of the one of the best features of the Chicago Journalism Review. And it also taught me an important lesson, which is that humor is very often a much, much uh, more potent tool than, than anger or righteous indignation or anything like that. And uh, after I'd been, after the journalism review had been coming out, I guess for about two years, it was, it was never in good financial shape. No. None of us, you know, we are, we're journalists. We're not business people. We don't know anything. About, so I, I, it was about to fold, and I was so concerned that even though I loved the Wall Street Journal, I left the journal to become the managing editor of uh, Chicago Journalism Review, 
And my idea was, okay, I'll work at the Journalism Review three days a week, and I'll spend four days a week freelancing. Um, I had two small children to support. Yep. I uh, never did raise much money for the Journalism Review. I'm just not a fundraiser. But I did it <laughs> at the same time uh, develop a, a freelance trade for myself as a film critic and as a magazine writer. So the the I guess the lesson is that, um, what is it, Havelock Ellis said uh, that the byproduct is sometimes more important than the product. And... But the Journalism Review, I think, was one of the, it lasted for seven years. I think it made a difference uh, in, in keeping the, uh, the Chicago papers honest. And, uh, you know, things like uh, how they treated women, for example, not only mm -hmm. as employees, but as subjects of, of news. Things like that. But in the long run, I think, you know, our, our idea was we're going to, we're going to keep the papers honest by critique through criticism. And I, I like that idea in, in theory. That's, that's one of the reasons I was attracted to it. But in the long run, what came out of the Chicago journalism review was not a better Chicago tribune or a better Chicago sun times. What came out of it was that it planted the seeds of entrepreneurship in people like me and other people from my generation the idea that, hey, you can start your own publication if you don't like your newspaper. Maybe it's not going to be a full-fledged daily, but it could be a weekly. Mm -hmm. And that's when all those alternative weeklies started. And then, of course, the internet then came along, which was the ultimate entrepreneurial experience. Yes, and you mentioned that a couple of times in your book, you know, how are we going to monetize online journalism? And I don't know if you're familiar with Barry Wise, but she actually figured that out. You know, she's one of the few journalists that uh, I've watched and I have subscribed to. She has a uh, substat called Common Sense with Barry Wise. Uh -huh. And she has a podcast called Honestly. And she started this out. Are you familiar with who she is? A little bit, not really okay. much. So she's actually the one to me that proved you could monetize online journalism. And she was with the Wall Street Journal at the op-ed page. Uh -huh. And she, at the time, was a left-leaning centrist. And she was recruited by the New York Times to come work in the op-ed group. And during the big uh, brouhaha around Tom Cotton writing an article, if you remember this. Sure. Yeah. So Tom Cotton wrote an article about uh, bringing in the National Guard, specifically for BLM protests. and there was a big kerfuffle within the organization after they published it. They had 800 people on Slack or some online internal organization saying that this threatened the lives of black people, uh, black employees, and uh, they fired the editor. And it was, a, it was a big problem. And so Barry was there for the last three years and she was right. She's very vocal about her Jewish heritage and Israel and Palestine, and she's a prolific writer and a very gifted writer. And she actually left. She just wrote a resignation letter that was now very famous and said, I can't, I can no longer practice the kind of journalism I wanted to. You know, she was of the ilk that we discussed earlier out of Columbia Journalism School, filed to, you know, very good August publishers like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. She grew up with a father who was conservative, mother who was uh, liberal, and they read the Wall Street Journal together, excuse me, they read the New York Times together. And so this was her dream come true to work at this organization. Right. And she left without a job, much like you did many times in your memoir. And yeah. she, you know, just kind of went on her own. And obviously to your point, we didn't have, or you didn't have a lot of this with your weekly standards. Uh, you had, at the time, you still had press rolls and you had trucks and you had the delivery issues, you had all the distribution side of things. Today, when you start an organization like she did online, she used something called Substack, which is a online newsletter for journalists and writers and publishers of any kind of content. And in doing so, she garnered a very large audience quickly. I think within eight months of her starting to write, she had over 150,000 subscribers. 
many really? of which were many of which were paid, me being one of them. And she hired her her partner, who Nellie Bowles, I think is her name, was also a very good writer, and three of her favorite journalists. So I think at the time, and I I haven't looked into this for four or five months, but she has some very gifted and story journalists now on her staff. And she's writing, I don't know, between the group, you know, there's five, six articles a day that come out that I think are really interesting, long form content, uh, deep dives into subjects that a lot of papers don't want to cover. So there is examples today of, of this happening and it, and it, uh, it does work. <laughs> it's hard. And, she's, right. she's an anomaly out there, but you know, well, there's a moral to this story, and I, I actually mention it in my book because I did the same thing. And twice in my career, left a prestigious, well-paying job for, for something else. Uh, there's a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt in my book, and I think that applies to uh, Barry also, that she said, very often the man who thinks he is giving up his career for some ideal uh, actually makes his career. And of course, that applies to women also. Yes. I, I, I think that sounds like the situation you just described so sounds very much like that. You're saying she, she quit the Times in protest over their firing of the editor. Yes. Right. This, you know, this is something I do deal with in my book. Uh, very recently, means a number of publications, The New Yorker, Backed off, you know, they were going to have a, some kind of thing with Steve Bannon. Yeah. And uh, there was such a protest by the staff that uh, the editor backed off. Yeah. The um, Philadelphia Inquirer, they had a headline that offended, uh, was, was felt to be offensive to blacks. So the editor was fired or yeah. forced to resign. And there are a number of situations like that. And it's it's kind of scary, I I think, because basically it means that uh, a mob can intimidate you. I mean, Tom Cotton, right? Tom Cotton runs an op-ed piece in the New York Times. So what? You know, you read it. That's what he has to say, and you move on or you reply. I mean, you don't say shut up. And this is this is. A key point, I think, of, of my book and what I've tried to do, particularly really my is. last couple of publications, I sort of reached the, the conclusion that since none of us really, nobody, no human that I know of owns the whole truth of any situation. And if that's the case, one of the ways to get at truth, if that's what our job is as journalists, is to encourage conversation between people of opposing viewpoints. and. In that, if you look at it in that context, I mean, the idea of saying shut up is never acceptable as far as I'm concerned. I agree. And I think that that's also something that I really enjoyed in your book because you had numerous instances where, well, we can, we can dive into the welcome mat because I think that was the longest tenure yes. of your career. And you had numerous examples of you putting articles up posting articles that you didn't agree with. And I think you had, what, 300 freelance journalists write for that newspaper over a period? Sounds and, about right. Yeah. It and just, It was not just who was writing for us. It was the letters we were getting. And you got 2,000 letters in, in, in that period year. of time, right? Yeah, crazy. That was, you know, that was the whole idea. The, the whole paper was just like a giant op-ed page. Yes. That's what it was. It was it, the whole. Now, why don't you tell me a little bit about that? Because this story is actually, I think, really talking to power. And we can talk about Frank Rizzo, because as someone who spent a lot of time in Philadelphia um, as a tourist, I have one of my best friends and my journalist buddy lives there. I spent a lot of time there and I loved it. And we all knew who Frank Rizzo was and what he was about. But why don't you tell us a little bit about Welcome, Matt? Sure. Susan Siderman, who was, sounds like a wonderful human being. Uh, as complicated as she was, what your goal, what what your goals were with the organization, and then kind of get into uh, Frank, your busy man on TV. Nice. So yeah, tell tell I, us a little I, bit about the welcome mat and what brought you there. I, I even when I was in Chicago before I came to Philadelphia, I had this dream 
of some kind of publication, sort of like the Village Voice, where people would exchange ideas. And I, I tried to persuade conventional publishers, most of them men, by the way, when I was in Philadelphia about this, this there had never been, and we're talking about the late 70s now, there had never been a profitable alternative newspaper anywhere. I mean, they were mostly just, they were, they were political uh, tracts, or they were uh, for, for people who, you know, the counterculture or whatever, but nobody really thought about making money out of these things. And then I run into Susan Siderman, who has just inherited a free weekly paper in Center City, Philadelphia. That's downtown. It's tossed on people's doorsteps. And it was very pedestrian. It's free. And she had just inherited it from her father. And she was very feisty, very ambitious. <laughs> and I happened to meet her and bells went off. She said, I, you know, she said, I want the village voice in Philadelphia very close to my own vision. But the problem was we didn't have much of a budget. Right. I was paying like $35 for articles. But when I thought about it, you know, what, what, what do I have here? Well, I have a neighborhood. Downtown Philadelphia is really unique. It was uh, lots of people live there. Much, much uh, larger downtown neighborhood than any other city uh, in America. And, and they were educated, and they were affluent, and they all worked and lived in the same neighborhood. And I came up with this idea that if, if I give these people a, a vehicle to talk to each other, and they'll come out of the woodwork and they'll write for me. And a lot of these are very intelligent people. And I also looked at letters to the editors in, in uh, good publications. My, my college newspaper, my college uh, alumni magazine, the Pennsylvania Gazette, or the New York Times, uh, I realized, you know, people who write letters, on the one hand, they're very often they're people who are just venting. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, a lot of them really care and they're really intelligent. And you can fill up your paper with letters and it doesn't cost you anything. So this is kind of what... what uh, the welcome app became, it was a precursor of the internet. And I was running wherever possible on the front page of the welcome app, outrageous pieces, pieces that I personally disagreed with. And a lot of people didn't know how to deal with this. They, they didn't know what to make of it. But after a while, people started realizing, hey, this is fun, you know, exchanging ideas. And we were also... Uh, in the pages of, of the welcome ad, they could talk about subjects that were verboten in, in the mass media, right. such as religion, sex. Sex. <laughs> yes, that's yeah. pretty much it. People love to argue about religion. Yeah. Let them argue. That's fine. Now, I would say, obviously, this evolved over time. If I had it to do over again, maybe I would have explained early on, hey, we're running opinion pieces on the front page, you know, and I don't necessarily agree with these pieces. A lot of people thought I was, you know, trying to push my ideas on, on people. The, the real idea was let's get these ideas out in the open. Let's examine them, dissect them instead of just saying, shut up. So it was, it, it, it became a tremendous, it was very uh, successful both in terms of uh, journalistically and also it became the, the first uh, profitable alternative paper in, in America. And as you wrote here, it says, I saw the welcome mat functioning as a continuing demonstration that bad speech, Hitler's Mein Kampf, say, could serve as an early warning system against bigots and sexists by exposing their ideas to the light instead of allowing them to fester underground. When we silence other voices, I came to feel, we're really shutting ourselves out. And I think that that was really neat for me to read because I think that's a big problem that we have today on both sides of our political body where we are trying to shut the other out. Yeah. Specifically, what we call now non-platforming and de-platforming of critical thinkers, whether we like them or not. I think is really the big issue. And you actually posed 
well, actually, you published a page by one of your writers about AIDS. Right. That was very, very, you didn't disagree, you disagreed with it. But to your point, you wanted to start the dialogue. And right. from that, you then had ACT UP, which was a gay organization, literally storm your offices. Yeah. Right? That's right. Uh, basically, this was a typical kind of article that I would get. I mean, he was a retired professor. He wrote, he wrote a piece saying, um, I don't have any problem with, with homosexuals, but I don't want to, I don't want to have to pay for their medical bills if, you know, if, if, uh, if they get AIDS from, um, sexual promiscuity, something like yes. that. Yep. And, you know, it wasn't, I, I didn't completely disagree or agree, but I thought it was something that would launch a, a uh, conversation, which yes. it did. But then along comes this group who, who really felt threatened. And I, I can understand that. They were saying, you know, their idea was uh, if you run pieces like this, this will just give people the justification to beat us up, that kind of thing. Right. And you know, my, my feeling was uh, we are generating a conversation here. And that's what happened. I mean, we got tons of letters over a long period of time. And many of the people who had opposed the publication of this article at first ultimately came around and said, you know, this is this has been kind of good. And if I had simply run some piece about uh, let's let's help the people suffering from AIDS or whatever, nobody would have read it because the, the whole point of getting an audience is is drama. How do you dramatize something? And the essence of drama is conflict. You have to have a conflict. Um, the old Philadelphia Bulletin, that was their, their editorial page. That The big problem was they would basically say to their readers, we don't have an opinion on this. What? Tell us what your opinion is. <laughs> no, people have to have something to react to. And that's, that's what I was giving them. Well, yes. And you actually wrote in here, does silencing or intimidating the speaker really serve your purpose? Might there be something worse in this world than unrestrained free speech, which I thought was fantastic. And you also mentioned, how do you recognize your adversaries if you can't publicly identify themselves? That's another great one, which I thought. And then you mentioned this already, but to your exact quote, since none of us owns the whole truth, what matters ultimately is enabling the conversation. And I think that is where a lot of journalism, not journalism, a lot of our culture today has lost touch with that. To your point, conflict does engage people. Yeah, I, I, would, I would say something else, Joey, also, that uh, I'm, I'm, nobody's as much of a champion of free speech as I am. I've devoted my whole life to it, defended seven libel suits in the, in the pursuit of it but my my criticism of most free free speech advocates is that they think in terms of the rights of the speaker only and to me it's the rights of the what's really important is the rights of the audience mm -hmm. my right to listen to you to listen to adolf hitler to read uh, marx or or mein kampf or whatever without interference by uh, anybody else, whether it's the government or, or anyone else. And basically, these ACT UP protesters were saying, you're having a conversation in your paper, we don't want you to have it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm trying to have a conversation with my readers, and they're coming in and saying, we don't, we don't want you to have this conversation. So uh, that's my thing. I, and I, I, I really conjured up this this image of the welcome ad in a very selfish way i mean the idea was i'm educating myself here and the readers are lis listening over my shoulder and i want i want to hear what people have to say and and nobody else has the right to tell me i can't listen to them i think that's fantastic this, this was all a matter of of first of all educate not only educating myself but obviously evolving this this 
philosophy in my own head and, and educating readers. But the thing was, if you, you stick at it long enough, and I was there for 12 years, a lot of people who started out saying, you have a responsibility, you know, you are a community leader and uh, you have responsibility to, to uh, guide the public. And they came around eventually. I used to say, you know, look, if we can't have a conversation about outrageous things in the United States, in Philadelphia, where, where can you have it? So, I agree 100%. And I also think that one thing that touched me within your book was in 2020, you shared that you're waiting for a cab and a woman got into the cab and before she exited, she jumped in her cab and said, hey, aren't you the owner? Weren't you the editor of the Welcome Mat? You said, yes, I loved your newspaper. And then she jumped in the cab and drove away. And that actually, you said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you said something effect of, it's nice to know that all your life's work actually has some meaning. And <laughs> And I thought that was really neat because I think that that's where some of the criticism from the New York Times and the Washington Post to Bhatti Angar Sargon and others that I've read is that the papers themselves are not writing for all the readers. And so that's a big piece of where I think uh, we have some work to do as a culture because we have a lot of conversations today specifically around things like defund the police. As I mentioned, these are the subjects that we're covering at True 30, uh, critical race theory, gender ideology, and specifically with gender ideology is that you're not even allowed to talk about it. And if you do, you get attacked by the mob online. If you don't mirror the same opinions as those in the trans community, you're called you know, names and you're doxxed and people are trying to get you fired for being a bigot or a transphobe. And so uh, the reason I loved your book so much, because the red thread through all of your wonderful stories was free speech and the importance of being able to write what you believe, not only in the opinion papers, but for the actual consumer, the, the reader. And, and you kind of proved your mettle at the welcome mat when you went after Frank Rizzo. And do you want to talk a little bit about his heritage, his power? why you stood up to it, and then what took place with the libel lawsuit. I thought that was a great story. I would say Frank Rizzo was in many, had many of the same characteristics as Donald Trump. Uh, basically, he had agree. an adoring following. He had an, uh, an exaggerated uh, idea of his own abilities, mm -hmm. um, a, a refusal to uh, listen to other, other viewpoints. And I, I was editor of the Welcome Ad at the same time that I was writing a column in the Philadelphia Inquirer. And at some point in the, he was mayor from in, throughout most of the 70s, mayor of Philadelphia. Yep. And at some point, uh, I wound up becoming really his primary critic. And in, I guess it was 82, shortly after I came to the Welcome Ad, I ran a, a piece by a, a young writer pointing out that Philadelphia has changed tremendously since Rizzo became mayor and that Rizzo nowadays could not be elected mayor any more than a clown like Hitler or Mussolini or, <laughs> or you know, I named a couple of other people. And that's, yeah. Rizzo said, this is enough. This guy's been after me for years. Uh, I'm going to make him, he said, if I weren't a public figure, I'd make him eat a bunch of his articles, and he, he sued us for libel. And it took um, it took four, four years for that case to come to trial. It was really a, a, a baseless suit because you, you cannot sue for opinion. And he right. was claiming, he was his lawyer was claiming that this was a factual statement saying that he couldn't be elected or that he was, he was comparing him to... Uh, uh, Hitler or Mussolini. I mean, he didn't like being compared to Hitler or Mussolini. I don't blame him, but the fact <laughs> is, you're a public figure. And and at the trial, finally came to trial, we, of course, dug out all kinds of cases where he had applied Hitler analogy yes. to other people. And 
he and everybody in the courtroom seemed to realize what was going on, but he didn't. You know, he said, oh, well, that's different. <laughs> the case was thrown out in, in a day and a half, but I think it was one of our um, finest moments because we did stand up to him. He thought that we would settle. But I, I, to, to, to his credit, I think he didn't really think about how it was going to come out. He just wanted to make a statement, and, and to, uh, that's why he filed that, that suit. But <laughs> uh, it was a scary four years because no judge in Philadelphia wanted to take this case. They all right. owed him something. And uh, finally, it comes to comes to a, a judge named Bernard Goodhart, bless his soul. He had conflicts on both sides of the case. He, he had been a former prosecutor. He had worked with Rizzo uh, as, as a prosecutor when Rizzo was police officer. Uh, he also had his daughter... His son was in my daughter's class at school and was a friend of the so he had everybody had, in this case had had conflicts, but he refused to recuse himself. And uh, he 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 said he said I did not ask for this case. I do not want this case. I wish this case would go away, but this is my job. And by golly, I mean I it brings tears to my eyes when I think of it now. You know, a judge who finally had the clarity to understand my job is to hear cases. Yeah. It's not to not to find excuses not to hear cases. No, and, and before the and to your point, he did you guys won and he appealed it all the way to the Supreme Court, which got kicked out there as well. But yeah. dude, before the actual judgment, you wrote this in your book, which I I thought really summed up your whole career for me. And I thought this passage was brilliant. So I wanted to share it with my listeners says, for myself, it no longer matters whether we win or lose this case. What matters is to get into court where each side's views and philosophy may be aired. The decision of one judge in our favor of Rizzo's meant little to me. To be sure, the judge wields both the right and the power to deprive us of our property, our liberty, or even our lives. But he does not possess the power to prevent people from speaking, listening, and thinking. Our words and thoughts survive as long as we are gone. For that reason, what really matters is not the court of common pleas, but the court of public opinion. If our respective ideas can be examined openly, the conclusion of one judge is irrelevant. History will draw its own conclusions. And I think that really sums up your career, sir. I, I think that there will be plenty of journalists coming up. I actually went and met with some young journalist at the Northwestern School of Journalism recently, and, and uh, they are as excited to get into journalism as I think you and your friends of the Kennedy class were when you were at Penn. And it's really encouraging for me to see the diversity in these young kids, not only ethnically uh, and sexually and otherwise, but viewpoint diversity. A lot of these people come from different walks of life, and they have a different purview of the world. And I think that the written word still has power. And I think that today, even more so than ever, we need journalism to well, actually call out the power. That's very encouraging to hear you say that because the whole motivation for this book originally was my feeling that young people don't want to go into journalism today. That uh, when I ask, when I go to colleges and, and I ask, you know, members, members of the student newspaper, how many of you are going into journalism? Nobody raises their hand. They all say, well, all the newspapers are folding. There are no jobs. Mm -hmm. And my point was that I, as, a, as an aspiring journalist from the time I was little, I thought I'd spend my whole life on daily newspapers. And as it turned out, I spent six years on daily newspapers and then never again. I <laughs> Other things came along that did not exist when I was in college. City magazines, alternative yeah. weeklies, and finally the internet. So that was that was the message I wanted to get out to these people. That hey, I've you know I, I've had a very interesting and exciting and rewarding life, and all kinds of things that came along ju just because I got into journalism. 
My my analogy was it's like you're riding a raft down a river. If you know how to navigate the raft, it's going to take you along from one adventure to another while everybody else is just unsure, is just sort of sauntering along. But that's the message I wanted to get out to people. Well, I think you did. And I don't know exactly what you're doing with your distribution or, but I will tell you this, any young journalist that I meet, I will recommend to read this book because as I mentioned, it really gives a wonderful fly on the wall analysis of journalism from the late sixties all the way to today. I think you're not sure exactly when your last uh, professional career was, but you know, you said that the, I think it was 2018 was the last time you wrote um, in something. But the one thing also that was neat in here is a notable quote from the Penn sociology professor, Digby Baltzan, said, the Inquirer is a great newspaper, but the welcome mat is human. Yeah, I think I really, pretty much said it all. I think so, too. We're, we're, what, what you said about, I, I appreciate your recommending the book to, uh, to students. We're just uh, right now trying to really make a push to get journalism schools to either read the get get use the book as a textbook yeah. or make some kind of use of it or or bring me in to talk to them to students because that's what you know the the future of democracy really depends on good journalists. I believe that in my heart, and I don't think that's hyperbole at all. I actually think that that's why this field is so important. And I do think that a lot of the young men and women that I've talked to believe that as well. I think that they know that they can actually put power on notice and say, hey, you know, we're going to come after you. We're going to find this out. And I think specifically today with our truly divided culture, yeah. we, we need journalism more than ever to call out the nonsense of people like Donald Trump and what he's doing currently. And to be clear, I have plenty of respect for the Republican Party. I just think that Donald Trump as a human being is the wrong thing for our democracy. I don't think he's, uh, I don't think he cares about democracy. I think he cares about himself. He did a very good job in chapter 19 of describing exactly who he was. You know, someone who has narcissistic personality disorder, <laughs> some level of, you know, all he cares about is himself and what he needs to accomplish to please himself. And I couldn't agree with that more. Here's, by the way, an interesting example, I think. We were talking, talking earlier about how do you serve your readers. Yeah. I have been following Trump for more than 40 years, back to my days as a financial writer. And I used to, in the 70s, I was, I was uh, compiling rich lists. Who are the richest people in this city or that city? And then I helped Forbes magazine start the Forbes 400 in 1981. But <laughs> yep. in 1978, I did a list for Town and Country magazine, the yeah. wealthiest Americans. Most people who would be on such a list would try to avoid it. You know, they don't right. want to be listed. They're afraid of kidnappers or fundraisers. One person who did lobby to be on the list was, <laughs> and you can guess, Donald Trump. He was 32 at the time made a very clumsy attempt to get on the list. I, as a matter of pride, uh, tell you that uh, he never made one of my lists. But I did begin to follow him at that point. So I was following him long before political writers were following him. And yeah. when he did get into office, uh, I'm, I'm at uh, Broad Street Review now, the, the arts and culture website I started. And I felt I have something of value to pass on to my readers here uh, because I have an insight into him that nobody else seems to have. The political writers all say, well, all right, any, every president, you know, is overwhelmed by the job. It takes a while to learn the job. And I, I knew he's not going to learn anything uh, because I've been following him all these years. When he started, when he came into office, I made a series of predictions about his behavior. I yes, think he did. Seven, and uh, they, they all came to pass, but they all, people thought I was nuts at the time, you know. No, I mean, it, you I did, know. it was, was prophetic. And then that, and that was, again, in that chapter. And that was where I thought, 
is kind of a nice way to encapsulate, you know, your career. I spent, you know, many years in, in New York City in the ad business and my friends and I felt the same thing. You described him as an amusing buffoon. And I think that's exactly what he is. We, we never looked at him, anyone in the business world always looked at him as a daddy's boy who inherited his wealth, never accomplished anything himself. And I think one of your writers, I was, this is a man who never sweated in his clothes. <laughs> that was Jim Quinn. I think you mentioned yes. yes, that writer. Um, but he was just a very unimpressive human being on every front. And that was, we never took him seriously. And to your point, you said you never took him seriously in the 2016 primaries. Neither did I. I didn't think he had a chance. And then when he did win, I didn't think he had a chance in the general. And then when he won that, I thought, oh my God, I was wrong. I was wrong about everything to do with him. And, you know, I think I wasn't alone in that camp. Well, I'm, I'm in the exact same situation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think the problem, at least my problem, was that I believed that the American public would, would not be fooled by him the way you mean it. I, I could see through him. I assumed everybody else could. I did too. And I was wrong. Yeah. And that's, again, that's where the power of journalism can help us. And I think that if you look at the rise of the New York Times since 2016, right, that is the good news too. And I think that's also an indication of where we are, is that good journalism is necessary. And the New York Times had its, it broke a billion dollars in subscription revenue in 2019, I think. And uh, that was their goal. And they are to our earlier point, I think it's a fantastic organization. Obviously, it has some issues like any big organization, but that and the Washington Post are doing their best to continue to keep our readers informed. And that's really the power of journalism. That's exactly what you did in your career, sir. And I will let you go. But I just, again, want to thank you for, for writing this book. Thank you for your decades of intrepid journalism and brave reporting because you did a lot of stories that I, I sure would have been scared to write. And, uh, you know, you're someone I look up to now. And uh, I, again, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Joey. It's been my pleasure and I appreciate your interest in the subject. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.